Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to finish out Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15 this morning. And then next week, we'll look at chapter 21. And hopefully, we'll get through 21 next week. And then the following week, Revelation 22. And we'll finally conclude this series in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20. Verses 7 through 15. We come this morning to the, to the final rebellion of man and then the great white throne judgment of God. It's no secret, when I was in school, I wasn't the best of students. Struggled through school. Uh, there was a lot of, about school that I did not like. Uh, probably the part that I disliked the most was pop quizzes. Couldn't stand a pop quiz. Um, unexpected tests. I had a professor in college, Dr. Gordon Dutill, wonderful, amazing professor. Impacted my life in a great way. But he loved giving pop, pop quizzes, tests. He'd say, all right, put your stuff away, get out a blank piece of paper, and I'd get mad. <laughs> I must confess, I'd get mad at him. But the problem wasn't the teacher. The problem was that I wasn't prepared. And what I found is that when I wasn't prepared, I didn't like the person who held me accountable. There's a lot of people out there that don't like to talk about Jesus, don't like to talk about God, and they certainly don't like to talk about the judgment of God. And it's primarily because they're not prepared. And when you're not prepared, you don't tend to like the one who holds you accountable. This morning, we're going to see that we will all be held accountable. All of us will stand before God. With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, as we come before you this morning, we do so with great humility because we come before your holy word knowing that it's inerrant and true. It's living and it's active. And God, I pray that by means of your word, you would lay our hearts bare before you. And I pray that if there's anybody that's watching online right now, Reach Church DeSoto, the venue hall, right down the hall, the service we're in right here that doesn't know you, never trusted in Christ. God, I pray by means of your word and your spirit, you would open their eyes to the depth of their sin and the beauty of the salvation that you have provided in Christ so that they might be prepared for your coming judgment. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me, beginning in verse 7. It says there, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. At the end of the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, Satan is released. He's released because every, every generation must be tested. 
Adam and Eve in the garden were given a test. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they sinned. They rebelled against God. And there was consequences. And surely now this family, having seen the direct consequence of their sin and knowing the love of God, surely now they'd follow in obedience. But very quickly we see that sin entered the heart of their son Cain. He killed his brother. You move down further and you get to the generations of Noah and it says that man's thoughts were filled with evil continually. They disobeyed, they failed and God brought the flood. He started over. He preserved Noah and his family and Noah and his family get off that ark and God reinstitutes sacrifice and surely now this family, surely now they'll follow God. I mean, they've seen his hand of judgment. They have the institution of sacrifice. They even have government. God establishes government there in Genesis 9. Surely now this, this people will follow God and trust in him. And yet you see very quickly in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, man rebels against God. And God in an act of mercy strikes them with different languages and nations are scattered over the four corners of the earth. And God takes a nation unto himself through a man named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and God makes great promises to this nation that I'll bless you and Through you will come the Messiah and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And surely now this family that's given these great promises, surely now they'll they'll follow God and walk in obedience. Very quickly you saw those 12 brothers and they hated Joseph and they tried to kill him. They lied to their dad. They fell into idolatry and bondage in Egypt. They failed. And God, in an act of mercy, draws them out of bondage, out of Egyptian bondage. And he comes to a man named Moses, and he gives him his law. Now they have the word of God written down in front of them. Surely now, this people, having been brought out of the bondage of Egypt, and now having the word of God, surely now, this people, surely now, they'll, they'll follow God and walk in obedience. You see, very quickly, they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. God would send the prophets to them. They rejected the prophets. They tried to kill him. And then finally, guess what God did? He sent his own son. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth, live perfect, sinless life, die on a cross for their sins. And even there, they didn't do well. They tortured him and they killed him. God and his great sovereignty, his great wisdom used the evil act of man and the crucifixion and turned it around for our redemption and our salvation. God now through Christ and his sacrificial death is now freed up to offer salvation as a free gift of grace through faith. God now extends salvation as a free gift of grace through faith. And the, the apostles spread the message out over all over the world. And surely now, surely now men will follow God and walk in obedience. And yet for the past 20 centuries, how has man done? 
on the whole, not well. God has saved out a remnant, the church, the called out ones. He's gathered a people to himself, just as he had done in every age, a group of people, a remnant who would follow God. But on the whole, you look at man, and the story of man is a downward spiral of rejection and rebellion towards God. And what did God do? The rapture of the church snatched out his people. The raptured church, the tribulation begins and God pours out his judgment. What we've been studying primarily in the book of Revelation is the tribulation time when God pours out his judgment upon these people that have rejected him and rejected his Messiah. But even in the midst of that, what was God doing? Even in the midst of the tribulation, he was extending salvation and many came to faith in Christ even in the midst of the tribulation. But again, man on the whole was rejecting God and rebelling until finally what happened? Christ returns with the raptured church at the battle of Armageddon and God puts down their rebellion. And Christ establishes the millennial kingdom the earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth and surely now, Surely now, man, under the rule of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints and tribulation saints, and you'll remember there's this generation of people who live through the tribulation, they enter into the kingdom, and no non-believer will enter the kingdom, but they still have a sin nature, and they pass that sin nature on to their children, and they'll have need to place their faith in Christ. But surely now, surely no one in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the glory of God, in the most blessed time in human history, surely man won't rebel now. Yet what do we see? Man rebels. Satan is released. God will use him for one last temptation. And Satan goes forth to deceive. Notice first, Satan has not changed, has he? A thousand years in the abyss has not changed him. In fact, it's only served to harden him towards God and towards his people, and he, he leads a rebellion. What, what, what is his deception? Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but we can take an educated guess at this because, quite frankly, I don't think Satan's deception has ever really changed. And what is Satan's lie? What is the, it's the same lie that he told in the Garden of Eden, that you don't need God. That you, you, you'll, never be, you'll never be truly free until you throw off God. Do your own thing. Follow your own path. You don't need God. God doesn't love you. God's holding out on you. He's restricting you. And if you want to know true freedom, just do whatever feels good. Go with your gut. Go with your feelings. Satan's deception hasn't changed. He'll lie to you and tell you that true freedom is not found in submitting yourself to God and his son, Jesus Christ, that true freedom is found in rebellion. That there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end leads to destruction. So he deceives man again. You'll notice here the mentioning of Gog and Magog. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog they're describing the enemies of God and his people. I believe they're two people. I believe they're individuals. But clearly, I, I believe that prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is describing the invasion forces leading up to the battle of Armageddon. In fact, they're mentioned there in Revelation 19, 
But according to that prophecy, the specific individuals in Gog and Magog are killed on the mountains of Israel. So I believe in this context, it appears that these are merely symbolic titles given to the leaders of this final rebellion that have been deceived by Satan. That Satan and his demons used these two individuals much in the same way that Satan used Antichrist. Here, at this point, he'll use these two individuals to lead a great rebellion against God and his people. And how effective is Satan in this deception, in this rebellion? It's amazing. Even in the kingdom, a multitude are led astray. In fact, Scripture says here, the number is like the sand of the seashore. Isn't this amazing? A multitude of people rebelling against God. It's a testament to the sinfulness of man that the heart is desperately wicked. And what do they do? Look at verse nine. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Notice here, who do they go after? The people who reject God will always hate the people of God. And so these who rebel, they, they know they can't attack Christ. They can't come against God. The best they can do is to attack the people of God. And so they surround the people of God in the beloved city. But now the patience of God is over. God has had enough. God is not going to contend with man any longer. It's the end of the rebellion in this universe, the rebellion that began in heaven with Lucifer and a third of the angels and extended Adam and Eve and Cain and has existed throughout the history of man, has now come to its final conclusion. And notice here, it's the great understatement of Scripture, the, the statement of God's execution of this rebellion. It's incredibly simplistic, but at the same time, it's incredibly frightening. Look at what it says. It's just a simple statement that fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And it's the end of the rebellion Look at verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The doom of Satan is now sealed. He's cast into the lake of fire with Antichrist and the false prophet, a place of eternal conscious torment for all believers. Scripture is clear. There, there's no ambiguity in the word of God. Hell is a place of conscious, eternal torment. And then judgment. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. This is a great white throne judgment of God. Before this happens, though, the, the heavens and the earth pass away. John says here that heaven and earth fled away. Before the great white throne judgment, God will start all over. Jesus in Matthew 24, 35 says that heaven and earth shall pass away. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that this present earth is reserved for fire meaning Kansas City, Los Angeles, New York, Moscow, Beijing. This world is reserved for fire. 
Peter says the heaven and earth will pass away with a roar and the elements will be burnt up with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Hebrews 1.10 says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands and they will perish but you remain and they will all become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment they will also be changed. The author of Hebrews in that passage is making clear that there's only two types of people in this world. There's the creator and the created. Jesus is creator. He's God. He spoke this world into existence and one day he will bring it all down. The author of Hebrews says, like a garment, as easily as you and I change clothes, Jesus will change creation. God will start all over. One day this world is coming down. The heavens and the earth will be dissolved, folded up, burnt up. It'll all perish and God will start all over with a new heavens and a new earth. You wanna know what it's like? Gotta come next week. (laughs) Revelation 21. But then the unrepentant. The earth is burnt up. Heavens and earth pass away and then the unrepentant, unregenerate man stands before God the great white throne judgment. One of the greatest deceptions of Satan is to get people to believe that they can do whatever they want to do, live however they want, and they will not face judgment. That you can live however you want in no fear of punishment, no accountability. It's the great lie of Satan that you just kind of pass out of existence, that you fall asleep and die and then there's nothing. It's kind of an annihilationist viewpoint. I want to be abundantly clear this morning. You will find no such idea in Scripture. Every person will be resurrected. Every person is an eternal being. You will either be resurrected to eternal life with Christ in heaven or you will be resurrected to an eternity of torment in the lake of fire called hell. At this moment, the great white throne judgment, every unsaved individual throughout the ages stands before God. And the second death comes upon everyone who died in their sin and were never made alive in Christ. God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You'll be dead, dead. And they did. And death spread out. And on that day, the great white throne judgment, every person who dies in their faith, or dies without having placed their faith in Christ, without having been born again, will find themselves in a place of judgment. It doesn't matter how great, how powerful, how good you think you are. In fact, notice what it says in verse 12, the great and the small. And then in verse 13, the sea gave up its dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged everyone. It doesn't get much more clear than that. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how great you are in this world. It doesn't matter how wealthy you've been. It doesn't matter how powerful or influential. None of that power, none of that influence will help you at this moment. You ever feel like in this world, if you just have enough money and enough influence, you can get out of anything? Listen, not on this day. It doesn't matter how much wealth. It doesn't matter how much 
power. It doesn't even matter how impressive your religious works might be. Remember, there are those on this day who will say to the Lord, 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 did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name we did wonderful works? And you remember what does the Lord say to them? Depart from me for I never knew you. Listen, your salvation is not based on your works. It's based on whether or not you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and been born again by the Spirit of God. Scripture seems to indicate there's going to be some people who went on mission trips. Scripture seems to indicate there's going to be some preachers who preached God's word, but they never knew Jesus Christ. They never placed their faith in Christ for the repentance of their sins and for salvation. Doesn't matter how great you think you are. None of that will stand before God. God has never looked at an individual and says, boy, that person is so impressive. I've never seen so buddy, so wealthy or powerful. I think I've got to have them on my team. We got to get that person into heaven. God is not impressed. On the other end of the spectrum, you also need to know it doesn't matter how insignificant you are or think yourself to be. You don't get a pass just because you had a bad childhood. You don't get a pass because you were poor. Again, there's only one group of people who escape this judgment. It's those who have placed their faith in Christ. Those who have recognized the sinfulness of their lives. They've repented of their sins. They've turned to Christ in faith. But to those who will not trust in Christ, you will stand before God. And I think what's interesting here is that you'll be judged on the basis of your deeds. And the, <laughs> you really got nothing to worry about as long as you've never sinned. Uh, I told this in the Saturday night service. I may get myself in trouble here, but there was a guy who's preaching, a preacher preaching one time. says, anybody here perfect? Guy in this back stood up. He said, sir, are you, you saying you're perfect? He said, no, I'm standing in honor of my first wife. <laughs> Should have left it out. Pastor Chuck, I should have left that one out. <laughs> Hung myself out to dry there. Listen, you got nothing to worry about if you've never told a lie, you've never had an impure thought, never had to confess, and never had to apologize. But if you're a sinner, if you've never turned to Christ in repentance and faith, the books are opened. And now we look at your life, all of your life. All your thoughts, all your actions, all your words, all the sinfulness of your life is laid bare before a holy God. I think it happens in a heartbeat. All your evil, all your rejection passes before you and God in an instant. Here's your life. And your life in light of the holiness of God will seal your fate. So many people believe that judgment is about God lining you up in comparison to other people. They think judgment is about you standing before some old man with a white beard. And he's going to look at you in comparison to other people. And the fact of the matter is when you think about that, you think, well, there's always somebody worse than me. In comparison to certain people, you might look pretty good. But God's judgment is not about lining you up and comparing you to other people. It's about comparing you to the holiness of God. And no one measures up. 
And when your life is laid bare in front of a holy God, you're sealed, you've sealed your fate. There'll be no debates, no tantrums, no public defenders, no expensive lawyers, no rebuttal, no jury, no appeal, no possibility of parole. In fact, it's not a trial, it's a sentencing. And in the eternal body of your resurrection, you will stand before the judgment of God to receive your sentence. Every mouth will be shut up and the world will be brought guilty before God and cast into the eternal lake of fire, the second death. There's a lot of people that are afraid of death. Death is hard. Death is a frightening thing. But please understand this morning, this is the death that you need to be afraid of. We're all going to die And death is hard, but this is the death you need to fear. Don't fear the first death, fear the second death. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know what's amazing about this book, the Bible? You can take the first two chapters, first two chapters in Genesis, and everything in those first two chapters, everything is under the dominion of God. They're living in perfect submission to God and to each other. The last two chapters in Revelation, everything is perfectly under the dominion of God. And then you get the rest of this book right here. This right here. The bulk of this book is what? It's the rejection and rebellion of man and the patience and the mercy of God. If you were God, would your Bible be this thick? No, it wouldn't. God is exceedingly patient, overwhelmingly patient, desiring that none should perish. That's why scripture tells us to count the day as a day of salvation, that God extends grace and mercy. But if you will not turn, I am here to tell you on the basis of God's word, that at a certain point, the patience of God will end. God is fixed today in which he will judge the world through a man, and I plead with you today to place your faith and trust in Christ. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us, none of us are perfect. You know what's interesting? We live in a, an entitlement culture. And somehow, We've bought into an idea that God owes us something. That God owes me this, or God owes me that. Listen to me this morning. God owes us nothing. All that we deserve is death and hell. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. The wages of sin is death. And if God left it that way, then that would be God being completely just. But in the grace and mercy of God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sends his son Jesus in the greatest act of love ever known to man. He sends his son Jesus to die on the cross, not for his sins, but for ours. He absorbs the full weight of God's wrath for our sin so that now God could be freed up through faith in Christ to offer you and I salvation as a free gift of grace. And so we confess our sins and we repent and we turn from our sinful past and we trust in Christ. He's our refuge and our strength, our only hope. But if you will not bend the knee, 
you will not turn from your sin and turn to Christ, then you, listen to me, one day you will get what you've earned. You will receive what what you deserve, the just punishment for your sin in the eternal lake of fire. That's the final exam. The question today is, are you prepared? President of Moody Bible Institute years ago was a man by the name of R.A. Torrey. Dr. Torrey received a letter from a father who was incredibly distressed. He had a son named Bill. And the father wrote to the president of Moody and said, I, you need to admit my son. Please admit my son into your school. He's struggling, he's rebellious. I think your school, though, the Moody Bible Institute, might be able to change him. And Dr. Torrey said, I will not, I will not admit him. This is a school, not a reformatory. But that father wouldn't give up. He just kept writing Dr. Torrey until finally Dr. Torrey relented. Said, all right, I'll let your son Bill in, but here's what he's gotta do. He's gotta meet with me every day of the week and he's gotta follow the rules. So this young man named Bill went to school and initially Dr. Torrey said, it's a hopeless situation. This man is, this young man is so rebellious, he's so troubled, nothing great, I don't know how in the world and yet Bill kept showing up to meet with Dr. Torrey. And over a period of time, that young man named Bill Gave his life to Jesus Christ. Trusted in Christ, transformed by the gospel. In fact, he ended up becoming a professor at Moody Bible Institute, Dr. William Newell. And Dr. William Newell, now having come to faith in Christ and teaching there, he was thinking about putting his personal testimony in verse form. And he kept thinking about it and thinking about it until one day he was walking to class and the words just came to him. He ducked into a classroom, took out a pen and wrote the verses on the back of an envelope. He was coming out of that room to rush to his lecture and he bumped into Dr. Towner who was the director of the School of Music. He took the verses and he handed them to Dr. Towner and he said, here's some great verses. They need a great melody. And Dr. Towner took the verses and went on his way. Dr. Newell went to his lecture, taught his class. He was coming out of his class. Dr. Towner met him in the hallway. And he looked at Dr. Newell and he said, I took your words, composed a melody, and I believe we just might have written the greatest song we'll ever write in our lifetimes. Dr. Newell went on to become an incredibly well-known professor, wrote commentaries. But Dr. Newell said this. He said he had not known the troubled pain of his disobedience. He might not have ever have known the importance of Calvary's grace. 
I say that to say to you, some of you today, as I was praying this week, some of you might be going through some very severe difficulties in your life brought about due to your own sin. And God might just be using the severe trials of your life and the difficulties to get your attention and draw you to himself to show you the depth of your sin and the need of a savior, Jesus Christ. I have people in my life that my prayer is that God would do whatever it takes, even if God has to inflict physical pain on their life, God do whatever it takes to grab their attention so they would trust in Christ because what they need the most fear is not the first death, but the second death. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And maybe God is grasping your attention through the severe difficulties of life so that maybe your testimony would end up being the same as Dr. William Newell's when he wrote this. Some of you know, some of this will impact you more because you were there. I look around this room, I see some folks that would be willing to say, just like Dr. Newell, that years I spent in vanity and pride. Some of you know what that's like, amen? Years you spent in vanity and pride. Carry not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. My prayer is that somebody in this room or watching online right now, you would know and begin to realize the depth of God's love poured out in his son Jesus who died not just for the world, but for you. To save you from a life of vanity, to give you new birth, re reborn by the Spirit of God, set down a new path and the confident assurance that the eternal wrath of God will never touch you. Y'all wanna sing that song? You know that one, At Calvary? Bill, you come on up here. I love this song. If you ever have cause to doubt the depth of God's love for you, you have only need to look to the cross. No greater demonstration of love. So I don't care if you're here this morning, you've been saved for years. Keep looking to the cross. Or if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, our challenge to you would be look to the cross. Let's stand together, let's sing this song. Years I spent in vanity and pride
love singing with the piano. But I like singing a cappella every now and then. So we're going to sing this last verse, Pastor Bill, because I'm pretty bad at this, and, and he does better, especially when we go a cappella. Bill, will you lead us in this last verse a cappella? Sure. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did spend at Calvary. See you, church. Mercy there was great and grace was And there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Father, we come before you today humbled in your presence. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. God, I pray I haven't muddied the water this morning. God, I believe in the power of your word. I believe there are people here that need to trust in Christ. God, I pray somehow this morning they've not only seen your judgment, but they've seen your love. Your word says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. God, I don't want to scare anybody to run to Jesus, but I pray, Lord, you'd overwhelm them with your love and your grace this morning. That you have provided a way of salvation. I pray that they would run to Christ, repent of their sin, turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus and know your life. Maybe they're weary and worn out with sin. Maybe they've bought into the lies of Satan. He's a hard master. I pray that they would hear the words of Jesus this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Oh, God, I pray that they would find rest in Christ today. And, Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray every day of our lives we would have the heart of a Paul who said, for me to live is Christ and to God die is gain. But if I'm... If I'm to go on living the flesh, this means fruitful labor. I pray that we would be reminded that if we still have breath in our lungs, if we still have a life to live, I pray that we would live it under the glory of Christ, boldly declaring the gospel. Reminded that every day is another gift of grace. Another day is another opportunity. Another day in which your patience is extended but God, let us not take it lightly. Let us redeem the time, for the days are evil. We don't know when that last opportunity will come. We don't know when that last opportunity to tell our friend, our family member, our coworker about Christ. So let us take advantage of this day for the glory of Christ and the growth of his kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.